It's time for a Swedish Fika with some Swedish fun facts with your host, Pixel Pia. Today, we are going to continue taking a look at history in Sweden. And the topic of today is the regal ship Vasa. The catastrophe turned into a success story. The Lion of the North, Gustav II Adolf, is building Sweden into one of the most feared powers in Europe. In January 1625, the Swedish king signs a contract with the Dutch master shipwright Henrik Hubertsson and his business partner Arendt de Groot. They are to build four new ships. One of them, Vasa, is to be the most powerful warship in the Baltic, if not in the world. It is the beginning of one of the most spectacular fiascos in Swedish history. The king's newest and most powerful ship, Vasa, is launched in the spring and hundreds of craftsmen work through the summer to finish the hull and rigging. When completed, a giant of a ship of its time is born. Her cannon could fire 250 kilograms of ammunition in a single broadside, and when the heavy iron shot left the muscles, they traveled near the speed of sound. For a brief few minutes, she was the most powerful armed ship in the Baltic. If not, Vasa carried 64 cannons when she set off on her maiden voyage in August 1628, but eight of the gun ports were empty. The navy yard could build a ship faster than the royal gun foundry could cast its gun. The main armament was 48 24-pounders, powerful bronze cannon that fired round shot, weighing 10 kilograms each. The upper deck carried smaller cannons, eight three-pounders or 1.25 kilograms, and six short thin-walled guns for firing anti-personal ammunition at short range. The 24-pounder was a new type of gun developed in 1620 for the army as a mobile siege artillery. It weighed only half of the traditional naval 24-pounder and was part of the king's drive to standardize the weaponry of both the army and navy to make it easier to manufacture and supply ammunition. The cannon on either side of the ship could fire a broadside of 250 kilograms, around four times as much as the typical Swedish warship of the 1620s, and twice as much as the largest ship in the other northern European navies. Had she been able to carry sail, Vasa would have been a fast ship, and this combination of speed and firepower could have been devastating. The captain supervising the construction of Vasa, Surfring Hansen, calls Vice Admiral Klaus Fleming down to the ship because he is worried. He has 30 men run back and forth across the deck and the ship rolls alarmingly. The Admiral has the demonstration stopped, afraid the ship will sink at the quay. Under pressure from the king to get the ship to sea, 
he ordered Surfring to sail anyway. Months later, Vasa sets off on its first and last voyage. What started with the church service and the festive atmosphere ended in a watery grave. It was the 10th of August 1628 when Vasa, the most powerful warship in the Baltic, foundered in Stockholm Harbor before the eyes of a large audience, scant minutes after setting sail for the first time. It was mid-afternoon when at last it was time. After many delays, frustrations with the supply of guns and the change of captain, the newly fitted out Vasa was anchored below the castle, with its cannons finally on board and the crew manning their stations. The quay was packed with people and the water teemed with small craft carrying people who wanted to watch the mighty war machine slip its moorings and sail from Stockholm. The crew had been allowed to bring their families as it was the ship's maiden voyage. The guests, including women and children, would disembark at the fortress of Vaxholm before the ship continued to the summer fleet base in the island of Elvsnabben in Stockholm's archipelago. There it would be the flagship of the reserve squadron, awaiting further orders as to whether to reinforce the blockade of Gdansk in the stalemated bloody war against Poland-Lithuania, or to join the Swedish squadron protecting the German port of Stralsund. Only then would a ship's complement of marines, two companies of soldiers totaling 300 men and officers, come on board. But the soldiers were never to set foot on Vasa. August 10th, 1628 was a Sunday, and many of Vasa's crew had received communion earlier in the day. Hopes were high as people bid farewell or followed the ship from the quay, but some aboard the ship were worried. Vasa cast off from the palace between four and five o'clock. Because the wind was from the south, the ship had to be warped with the help of anchor along the waterfront to the other end of the city island, to the place now called Slussen. Here she could pick up the current that would take her down the harbor. As the ship found the current, the last warp was cast off. Vasa was freed from the land. Four of the ten sails were set, and the salute was fired. There was little wind under the bluffs of Södermalm, not even enough to pull the sheets of the sails taut, and Vasa drifted on the current, not answering her helm. A small gust filled the sails, and the ship heeled to port, but slowly, agonizingly slowly, recovered. As the ship passed the gap in the bluffs at Tegelviken, a much stronger gust pushed the ship so far over on its port side that water poured in through the open gun ports on the lower gun deck. Vasa began to sink. Pandemonium reigned on deck. The captain ordered the sheets cast off to spill the wind from the sails and the gun ports closed. Vice Admiral Erik Jansson ran below to make sure the cannons had not broken loose. Many threw themselves into the water, while those below decks 
struggled to make their way up wildly tilting ladders. Within minutes, the ship was on the seabed at a depth of 32 meters. The masts stuck up above the surface and many grabbed hold of them. Others were picked up by the small craft that had followed Vasa's shaky journey at close quarters. Some swam the 120 meters to the shore of Beckholmen. All but 30 of the crew and guests survived when Vasa sank. Most of the dead were trapped inside the ship. We only know the names of a few people on board. The captain, Surfering Hansen, abandoned Vasa late, almost too late, as he was dragged under by the sinking ship and only barely reached the surface. Erik Jönsson also survived, but his escape was even closer. Below decks, checking the guns when his ship began to sink, the ladder on which he was climbing collapsed and he was struck by the hatch cover. He was pulled from the water and lay near death for some time. Among the dead was Captain Hans Johnson. He had been named as Vasa's original captain before being replaced by Suffering Hansen. He was still on board as it was common to take a second experienced captain on the first cruise of a new ship. There was mourning in Stockholm for those lost and relief among those who survived. There was anger among those who had built the ship but the overriding emotion was astonishment. How could such a thing have happened? A fearful royal council writes to tell the king of the disaster. An inquest is launched. The ship's officers claim innocence. The builders are adamant that they built the ship according to the design the king approved. The experts believe the ship had too little belly, not enough hull, to carry the heavy upper works. The blame falls on the designer, Henrik Hebertson, for the poor proportions. Master Henrik had been dead more than a year and cannot defend himself and does not need to be punished. The Salvage of Vasa. Some have called it Sweden's Apollo program, a dramatic and complex technical effort over several years to do something few thought possible, raise an intact 17th century warship from the bottom of the sea. Even today, many still remember where they were when Vasa finally rose from the deep after 333 years in darkness. Perry Edwin Felting on Sven Passion had confirmed on 4th of September 1956 that the small plugs of wood in Anders Francien's corner came from a ship, feeling their way in the dark, every step kicking up swirling mass of slit. They had established that a large ship with two tiers of gun ports intact to the point that one mast was still standing lay on the bottom of Stockholm's harbour. The news were electric. The question was, what's next? Armed with the knowledge of the ship's history and the divers' reports, 
Francine threw himself into building the coalition of institutions that could raise and restore the ship for the museum he had envisioned. The task would require the technical expertise of many kinds, from diving and salvage to preservation. It needed historical and archaeological knowledge of the early 17th century, and most of all, it would require money, manpower, and heavy equipment. Through his network of contacts, Francine knew where to find the right people. He persuaded each in turn to join the project and commit the needed resources. The Navy assigned Commodore Edward Clausen, the commander of the Navy's diving assets, to run the project and felting as the dive boss as well as all of its divers, in the form of their annual training courses. The Heritage Board detached a conservator, Bo Lundvall, who would spend his entire career with Vasa. The museum assigned Edward Hamilton, a retired naval officer and historian, and agreed to curate the finds. Broströms, the biggest marine salvage company in Scandinavia, with years of experience in racing sunken ships, assigned one of the divisions, the Neptune Diving and Salvation Company, to engineer and carry out the lift, and agreed not to charge a penny for it. Francine was also interested in the royal court in Vasa. The King Gustav VI Adolf was an archaeologist by training and threw his support behind the shipbuild by his namesake. His son, Prince Berti, one of the most popular members of the royal family, became the chairman of the foundation established to raise the ship, Vasa Nemden, the Vasa Board. Vasa quickly became a national celebrity and suggestions for how to raise the ship soon started pouring in. Creative ideas such as filling the hull with ping pong balls or freezing it in a gigantic ice cube were quickly discarded. The Neptune Company made it clear that they would only participate if they could use a reliable method for which they were already equipped. So between 1957 and 1959, Navy divers dug six tunnels under the Vasa and pulled massive steel cables through them to suspend the ship in a basket. At the surface, these cables were taken to two floating pontoons named Uden and Frigg. By pumping the pontoons almost full of water, then tightening the cables and pumping the water back out. Vasa could be broken free of the mud and lifted and moved into shallower water. As the divers dug with high-pressure water jets and dredges, they encountered a fascinating array of finds that had fallen off the ship, from rigging hardware to gunport lids and the first of more than 700 finely carved sculptures. They also found the main mast lying next to the ship and the ship's longboat. When one of Vasa's cannons was discovered on the 5th of September 1958, was covered live by Swedish radio. 
the ship became a constant feature of the news, and Felting, the tough, non-nonsense Daibos, became a national hero. On August 20, 1959, all was ready for the initial lift. Would the pontoons have enough power to pull the ship free of all the mud? Would the hull hold together under the strain? The pumps were started and the pontoons began to rise. Vasa was free again after 331 years. As the ship was lifted, it was moved into shallower water, set down, and then the process repeated. Each lift gained a little less than a meter, and in 18 stages the ship was moved into the lee of Castellholmen, where divers could work year-round at the 17 meters depth to prepare the ship for the final lift. For more than 18 months, a small team of commercial divers plugged holes where bolts had rusted away, fitted covers over the open gun ports, and rebuilt the bow and stern to make them watertight. Steel rods were fastened across the hull to help hold it together. It was also important to make the ship Lighter, the central part of the upper gun deck, which was covered with mud and debris, was cleared. More than a thousand objects were found. Coins, personal belongings, gun carriages, tools, and the bones of five people who had been on board when the Vasa foundered. On Monday, April 24th, 1961. Thousands of people crowded the shores around Castellholmsviken, much as they had lined the shore almost 333 years earlier. Radio, television and newspaper reporters filled special media boats at the center of the action, and Swedish television broadcasted live to all of Europe. The clock showed 0903 when the tops of a few eroded frames peeked out of the water. Soon, the carved heads of four warriors emerged, followed by the outline of the whole ship at last. It really was a ship that came back from the dead, a sensation. Much remained to be done. Thousands of tons of mud and water had to be pumped out of the hull to refloat it, and the ship had to be moved onto a pontoon of its own, where it could be excavated and conserved. Archaeologists had to come on board to excavate the interior, and conservators had to begin the arduous process of treating the ship so it would not shrink and crack. Divers would spend five more years recovering thousands of loose pieces of the beakhead, stern castle and upper deck, which lay around the hold where the ship had been together with the ship's longboat and anchors. But April 1961 represents a milestone, a good start on a long road to the museum we have today. Let's talk a little bit about the museum. 
by Friday, February 1962, the ship is ready to be displayed to the general public at the newly constructed Vasa shipyard, where visitors can see Vasa while a team of conservators, carpenters and other technicians work to preserve the ship. The museum opens with a salute from two of Vasa's cannons. Public interest is enormous and success is immediate. In 1962, 439,300 people buy a ticket to see the ship and its unique finds. Reconstruction and preserving a mighty warship from the 17th century is an enormous challenge. When waterlogged wood dries out, and the moisture in, in it evaporates. It shrinks and cracks. In order to prevent Vasa from being destroyed, conservation of the ship begins using polyethylene glycol, PEG, to replace the water. Loose objects are placed in large baths, while the hull of the ship is sprayed around the clock with the help of 500 nozzles and an elaborate pumping and filtering system. This treatment will continue until 1979. Some things just take time. Even after being sprayed for 17 years, the ship has a long way to go. The wood has to dry slowly to avoid cracking, and over the next 10 years, the humidity is gradually lowered. In fact, Drying will go on for decades until the ship stabilizes completely. In 1990, Vasa gets a new home. 384 proposals from all over the Nordic countries are received when an architectural competition to build a new Vasa museum is launched. In 1981, Swedish architect Hidemark Monson from Architect Contouret AB wins against tough competition and on June 15, 1990, the new Vasa Museum officially opened. The ship is the centerpiece of themed exhibitions about all aspects of naval life in the early 17th century. In the summer of 2000, the weather in Stockholm is terrible with nearly constant rain. Tens of thousands of wet visitors raise the humidity in the museum, and it swings widely each day as the overworked climate plant tries to catch up. The alarm bells ring for the conservation staff. Yellow and white spots appear on the ship and many of the artifacts. These suggest that the high humidity is combined with sulfur in the wood to produce destructive acids. Media reports that the ship is in danger of dissolving away before the visitor's eyes. The immediate solution is an entirely new state-of-the-art climate plant which went online in 2004, and the launch of an international research project to understand what is happening in the wood and to correct it. 2011 is the 50th anniversary and brings record visitor numbers to the museum. 
Tourists make the pilgrimage when Vasa celebrates the 50th anniversary of its recovery from the depths. The Vasa Museum sets a new record with well over 1.2 million visitors. After half a century of conservation and restoration work, the success of Vasa is easy to understand. It is unique and shows an intact ship from a forgotten time. Over 98% of the original structure survives, including masts and sails. So it does not look like a wreck, but like a ship awaiting the start of the next voyage. Just as Vasa looked in the winter of 1628. In 2015, Vasa Museum becomes the only Swedish entry in ninth place in the top 10 list of the world's best museums according to TripAdvisor. And if you happen to be in Stockholm and want to visit the Vasa Museum. Here are some current information. The museum is open daily from 10 to 5 p.m. on Wednesdays until 8 p.m. The price last time I checked was 190 Swedish crowns for adults. But young visitors between 0 and 18 can visit for free. A normal visit takes about one and a half to two hours and you are welcome to take photos or videos using both flash and tripods but only for personal use. At the museum they offer free audio guides in 19 different languages. It is accessible for people with disabilities and if you are disabled and have a companion with you there Admission is free. You can also bring assistance dogs, but no other pets. And the museum has seven floors, all accessible using elevators. That was the end of today's episode about the warship Vasa turned from catastrophe to success. In my next episode, I want to talk about something I remember vividly, and that is the real background to what today is known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And if you haven't already and want to be a part of the development of this podcast, I suggest that you join my Discord server. You can find the invite on my website at swedishfika.com. Until next time, as we say in Sweden. Hej då! You can keep up with everything from a Swedish fika on a swedishfika.com or on Facebook or Instagram as A Swedish Vika. And you can reach Pixelpia at pixelpia at aswedishvika.com.